you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of this passage. We've been making our way through the pastoral epistles. If you do not have uh, a copy of Scripture with you, you can uh, find this passage on page Given our nation's history uh, and how we began 
It's specifically the truth that God has revealed in Son Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions this in chapter 1 when he says, uh, when he's talking about his own call and his own, own ministry and how uh, his previous life may not at first look like it resonates with his current life as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, or I am the chief. So that, that's the core truth, not only for Paul, for us, should be for us, that Jesus Christ is coming to the world to save sinners like us. We have fallen short of God's standard. We, we don't, because of our own failures, because of our, our failures that we just confess, our failures to say the things that we should say, our failures uh, in doing the things that we should not do or failing to do those things that we should do. Our failures even sometimes not feeling the things that we should feel and feeling the things that we should not feel. Because of our, our, our failures, uh, we, need a, we need a change. We need a major change. We need forgiveness. And Jesus Christ has come into the world uh, to save us out of his grace, out of his uh, free goodness. And that's the core truth that we, we have accepted through the followers of Jesus Christ and that should characterize our community here. In terms of the, the uh, you know, we, we should be made up of people who believe in that truth, who speak about that truth. Our teachers should teach that truth. Um, our overseers should hold fast to that truth. Um, that's why deacons are important as well to hold fast to the ministry of godliness. Uh, that's why reading scripture is so important, should be so important to us as a truth, as a church, because the scriptures proclaim that truth as well. We seek to live out that truth. So let's look at in this passage at the things we hold fast to this truth. What should we be moving away from? And what should we be moving toward as well? First thing we see in this passage, and this is really from verses one and two is that we should move away this, this is not this is cumbersome. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Before I say this is cumbersome, I'm sorry, I, you're, 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 um, you're bound by limitations to the speaker here, but I'm just going to go ahead and We should move away from using the church to, um, for political ends, and we should move toward truth-shaped relationships. We should move away from using the church uh, as means political ends, and we should move toward truth-shaped relationships here. So he says in verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Let me stop right there. Um, because this is, this is one of those passages that at least for some people, this is a stumbling block to becoming a Christian. Honestly. So, so people, some of you can imagine somebody making this someone here, maybe you know someone like this. You imagine someone who has a friend or a family member who is, who is a, a deeply committed Christian. And so and this individual is not a Christian. And so the Christian is trying to get the non-Christian to consider the claims of Jesus. Okay? I'll go along with that. And they start reading scripture. They start thinking about Christianity. And they see see this passage right here, and perhaps several others. And then, and this is how it works, and read something online as well. Um, and all of a sudden, they come to believe, wait, Christianity. 
supports and promotes slavery. Um, I'm not going to take this religion seriously. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to take Paul seriously because we, as a society, have progressed. We've moved on from believing that human beings are instruments of other human beings, and this is upholding uh, that. Now, so uh, I need to respond to this as we, as we as we look at this text. The first thing that I'd like to know as uh, as we about Paul's overall point here is he says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters uh, as worthy of all honor. So the fact that Paul says that slavery here is a yoke indicates that it's not, it's not all things being good things uh, here. So in other words, Paul views this negatively. Uh, a yoke in scripture for humans is not a good thing. Uh, you also see in 1 Corinthians 7 that if a slave had the opportunity to be free, then he or she should. And sometimes that happens in the ancient world as well. And that's why he said in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy that, that you know, he translated as man-stealing or kidnapping, which was one of the bases for slavery in the ancient world, um, is a literally damnable offense. Um, so, so there are clues, even right here in 1 Timothy 6, that slavery is not a good thing. And Paul is recognizing the fact that he, as we also, live in a fallen, corrupt world. And this is not a, again, this is not a, a good thing. Now, as we now, this sermon is about theology of, of, of equality or slavery. But I think, again, it's important to think through this. How did we as a culture come to the belief that slavery is wrong? Uh, where, where did the people who have cried out to abolish slavery, where, where did they come from? They come from a group of people who ardently believe in Scripture. And you see, time and time again, uh, the cycles of when slavery is abolished, it's, most of the time it's coming from Christians. Uh, you see that in the ancient world, you see that in, in, in uh, movements of the 1700s, the 1800s, uh, especially in the English-speaking world, there's a guy named Rodney Stark, uh, a sociologist who's traced this and connected Christianity with the abolition of slavery, if you're curious about this. Um, but we see the seeds, in other words, what I'm saying here is you don't see Paul crying out for major economic change. He's dealing with, with a minuscule group of people. He's not crying out for institutional change, but you see the seeds of destruction of that institution in these books. Especially when Paul says in Philemon, uh, to Philemon, treat Onesimus as not a slave, but as a brother. Um, so it, I, the way I've heard it uh, said is a conversation uh, between a guy named Vincent Wright and Tom Holland in his videos on YouTube is it's like, it's like a, a lowering the bomb within the water and it goes off and and though all of the effects of that bomb are not seen at one time the, the ways everything come out and that's what that's what they claim that the new testament is to the institution of slavery so if we, if we keep those things in mind what does that mean for us today and how how can we move where are we this whole point about moving away from this 
moving away toward that. Uh, what you see is, for the Apostle Paul in Scripture, the church is not a political party. The church is not primarily existing for political ends, is what you see here. He is working within a fallen world. Um, we are to work within a fallen world. Paul is not crying out for immediate social revolution. Um, the church is bringing about social revolution, but we realize that there, there's a deeper issue in the economic um, and social injustices of the world. It's an estrangement from God. And we need to deal with the estrangement from God before we can deal with the other issues. The church exists to hold up the truth in Jesus Christ so that we can deal with the more important issue of being alienated from our Creator. Jesus Christ has come to do that. Now, if Paul would have been obsessed with changing institutions, then he would have missed the deeper problem, and the church could not be a pillar of pleasure and the truth. So there's, there's a sense in which, yes, Christians are to be political, uh, because we, we, are, we believe in a God who is just. And so if we believe in a God who is just, we're going to pursue justice in, in this world. And we're going to seek to defend the defenseless. And a true religion, as James 1 says, is to visit widows and orphans in the time of need. And so we're going to care deeply about justice, but realizing at the same time that the purpose of the church is something deeper than that. Um, Christ is not Caesar. Christ did not fight with Caesar's weapons. Um, but again, Christianity has found political ramifications. And so if we take Christ seriously, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's going to transform the way we view politics and the way we view relationships. So there's a sense in which the most politically significant thing we do all week is what we're doing right now. Worshiping and seeking to worship the living God. So again, uh, if we, there's a way you can take this, this passage as you know, filling in employer for master and employee for, for slave. And of course, it should affect those relationships at work or at school, family relationships, certainly. And uh, we as Christians should seek to be good employees, um, never, never compromising our faith. But our, our faith should make a difference in that relationship. But again, as a whole, we're to remember that the purpose we exist is, is to hold up the truth. And so we should have truth-shaped, uh, truth-based relationships as well. Okay, second point we see in this passage is not only moving away from, from using the church as a, as a means to a political end, but secondly, we should move away from false doctrine uh, to truth-based doctrine. That is, uh, false teaching, other teaching, and I'm using synonyms here, um, to truth-based teaching. And again, by truth here, primarily referring to the truth of the gospel. He says uh, in the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. Emphasizing the important part. We've already looked in the, um, in the, the series of sermons at how important the phrase these things is. Uh, maybe referring to the whole, the whole letter. Um, verse 3 says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in the teaching of the course of godliness, and then Paul's going to say what that person characteristics about that individual. Now, the, the next three points that I'm going to make could be lumped together in one 
things I, I do want to mention that because there's a sense in which doctrine that is either contrary to the gospel or doctrine that emphasizes things other than the gospel and exalts them above the gospel, um, there's a sense in which um, that, that, that promotes the character traits that we see later on. And there's, there's a sense in which, as well, a person who, who inclines toward the vices that we're going to look at in the rest of this passage is going to be more likely to accept strange doctrine, other doctrine, false doctrine. And so all of these things are, 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 are connected. So let's look first uh, at our goal to move away from other doctrine to truth-based doctrine. Now, this is not the first time in this letter that we've seen the phrase different doctrine or other doctrines. Um, the history of the word is related to the word um, we, We've also seen it in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, as I urged you, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So that happened in the first chapter of the letter, and we see it again in the, uh, in the last chapter of the letter. Now, what he says the different doctrines are in the first chapter are myths and endless genealogies that lead to speculation. Much has been spilled over what exactly those myths were and those endless genealogies were. The key problem, however, seems to be that they counter the gospel. In uh, the gospel, and the charge to remain faithful to the gospel, issues from Love from a pure heart. And these other things are, are taking the focus away from love. And that makes a lot of sense, right? So, in other words, if the gospel is about how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has loved us, come down, suffered for our sins, uh, that we might be forgiven and made whole, and that he rose from the dead that we might have life, it is a story of love. You know, from, from the first part. Anything that would take us away from the gospel, again, would make sense, would take us away from, from love. And take us away from that message of love. Um, so what, what the issue for us as a church is if we major as a church on things other than the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, or if we emphasize things that are contradictory to that message, we are embracing other doctrines. We are embracing other teaching. And so it's important for us uh, to seek truth-based teaching or doctrine. Um, where do we look for that? Again, I'm going to reread verse 3. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree or is not devoted to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So it's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ for gospel. We have a gospel reading every Sunday. But by implication, um, if, if, as Jesus says, the entire Old Testament is about, if, if Paul is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by implication, this would be the whole Bible, um, if the words of Jesus Christ. So we, we, we look for the gospel in Scripture, and we agree with Scripture, and by running away from other doctrine, doctrine that he emphasizes, 
scriptural doctrine, biblical doctrine, gospel-centered doctrine, then we're able to hold up the truth uh, in the way that good flag should hold up the flag. Thirdly, we need not only to move away from false doctrine to truth-based doctrine, we need to move away from ungodly character traits to toward godliness. We need to move away from ungodly character traits to godliness. Now, what are some of these ungodly character traits? Verse 4, the person who accepts that different doctrine uh, is one who, it says, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So the first thing right here we see is conceit. Uh, conceit is an overestimation of our own worth and abilities. And we, can, we can undervalue ourselves as people who are made in the image of God. But the temptation, probably most of us, is to overvalue our own importance. Um, because overvaluing or overestimating our own worth and importance leads us to underestimate the importance of others. Um, if I'm all about myself, I'm not about you. You're, you're lower in terms of priorities if I am filled with conceit, if I'm puffed up with conceit. And what we see too is that conceit is, is going to lead to ignorance uh, of, of what is important. So it says, again, verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. That is a basic way in which that's true. I mean, if I think I know everything, just not even thinking about the if I think I know everything, I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, and so we can become more ignorant people if we're, if we're prideful and, and conceitful people. But, but the truth is perhaps sharper regarding Christianity. And that's why, uh, by many Christians through the ages, uh, pride is what is known as one of the seven, what's that, cultural deadly sins or, or cheap vices. Um, is because it is the type of character trait that will drive us away steadily from, from God and keep us, uh, really keep us from the gospel. So conceit is one of those things we need to be aware of um, and to flee from in our own lives. Secondly, an unhealthy craving for controversy. You can see how these things are connected, right? If I'm full of myself, um, most of you are going to be very disappointed in us, but you are not all about me either, and therefore I'm going to be more likely uh, to, to fight with you, to quarrel with you, to have a controversy. I have often is the case that we, we find ourselves fighting with other people when we don't really care about the issue. We, we've got to the point where we just care about winning the argument or winning the quarrel, so to speak. We lose the individual the argument. So, an unhealthy craving or lust for controversy, um, it means we're arguing about things that are not worth arguing about. It leads to, to bickering and other things. Another, another ungodly character trait in here is not only conceit, not only an unhealthy craving for controversy, but envy, which is another one of those seven deadly vices in these Christians uh, through the ages recognized it. Um, envy arises from a discontent with what God has given you. Uh, I, if I'm envious, I'm unhappy with what God has given me, and therefore I do not want you to have what I don't have. And then this character trait leads to all sorts of things. Division. Uh, he says, halfway through verse 4, an unhappy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, 
politicians and constant friction wranglings uh, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. We stop right there. So they're depraved in mind that is corrupted, these character traits and embracing other doctrine uh, can affect the way we think about things. And so that's why he says depraved or corrupted in mind and deprived or robbed, defrauded of the truth. So specifically what's he talking about? He's talking about the truth of the gospel there. Um, so embracing other doctrine uh, and having character traits where we would do that would lead us to um, be deprived of the thought of, of the truth. And then as we move on, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm going to stop right there what we should be moving away from. Let's think about what we should be moving toward. We should be moving toward godliness. Now, to, to make this point, we need to look earlier where Paul says at the end of verse 3, um, if anyone does not, if anyone teaches other doctrine and so on, and uh, does not agree or devote himself to the teaching or doctrine that accords with godliness. So godliness is the standard of teaching. Now what is godliness? The word itself refers to a proper respect for authority, specifically divine authority. So godliness we think of it as a respect of um, and, 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 and fear as well, perhaps even devotion to, to God. In Scripture, though, we see that there's, there's um, a focus there. It's kind of like put on some binoculars. Um, there's, a, there's a place that we like to go on vacation. The lower part of the state, there's all sorts of animals there. Um, there are alligators um, that we like to, to look at all different types of birds. And so there's some binoculars uh, that are usually left outside on the porch. And so whenever my eyes are, are, are weird, and so there's they have different problems with each one, and so I have to focus, I have to work harder, focus even the binoculars whenever I put it on. And so it's like when you put on some binoculars and everything looks boring, you roughly can make out where a bird is. If you focus it and all of, it, all of a sudden it becomes clear. I think we can think of godliness that way. Godliness is the fear of God. Alright, let's, let's, let's focus that. What is specifically fear of God? Um, chapter 3, verse 16. Is where Paul talks about the mystery of godliness being manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. Um, it's probably either a psalm or a poem or, or both, the lines of glory is too much to mean sometimes. Um, what is that? It's the story of Jesus. So, what is godliness? Um, it, is, it is Jesus, it's the gospel. And it's our response to the gospel. And so the teaching that accords with godliness is the teaching that accords with the gospel. And so we see this later on in uh, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, we've already looked at the importance of godliness in chapter 4 as well. So what we need to move toward, instead of these character traits, is a, a proper fear of God, a proper love of God, is manifested through our devotion to Jesus Christ. Uh, because of what He has done for us in His great grace. And then uh, lastly, we need to move not only, not only away from ungodly character traits, 
For godliness leads you away from greed on the love and money toward contentment. We need to move away from greed toward contentment. And again, there's a sense in which all these things make are a bit artificial because they're all just connected. But it would be a little bit cumbersome to that. Preacher said, okay, there's one point this morning, we'll spend the whole time on that. One point. So um, if you look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5, it says, imagining that or supposing that godliness is a means of gain. What is that? It is using the church, it is using other Christians primarily for profit. Um, so imagine the church is a means to an end. That end is, is financial profit. He mentions contentment in verse 6. Uh, now, we'll go back to verses 6 and 7 in just a second. And a, but then he said, it says in verse 9, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's a very graphic way to speak. Um, is it not about what certain vices can do to us? Uh, but greed is the third. I just have a theme by this passage. It's the third of those deadly vices that the church, the church has recognized um, throughout its, its history. And it's not a coincidence. So the, the, it goes on to say, understand, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. In other words, loving money Specifically, loving money above God is going to produce many more evils. There, there are other vices, there are other sins that flow out of it. So it's um, it's kind of like you know things that if you're a, if your yard somebody mentioned this recently if your yard um, has an oak tree in it and then and then you have a lot of acorns fall and then fall and these, these little uh, oak trees come up, and I, I used to, when I had a yard like that, I'd try to get rid of them just by cutting them, but you, you've got to get them up by the root often. Greed is the same way. It is, it is the root of all sorts of evils. There, there are different branches arising. You've got to get to the heart of the matter as well. Now, let's make sure we understand what is not wrong is to, to long for, to long to provide for oneself and one's family is to be generous toward others. So Paul is not saying that, that making money is wrong. He's not, he's not saying that. He's not saying that money in itself is evil. So in chapter 4, that creation is good. And so those are not, not wrong things. He's not saying that material goods are not good or that they, um, or that they are, are wrong in themselves. What he is saying is that the disorder or inordinate desire for money leads to all sorts of uh, leads to all sorts of problems. So, in other words, we can think of it like this. What are some of those other reasons? Uh, well, we're treating people as a means to an end. When we're treating people specifically only as a means to an end, there are evils that result from that. When we, when we compromise our honesty and integrity for the sake of more, that would be another evil that greed or the love of money leads to. Um, it, when we abuse those who depend on us because they are not important as the, the money for the possessions that we are seeking. When we show favoritism and we treat people based on what we receive from them or what we think we can receive from them. That would be an evil 
that the love of money leads to. When we do not speak truth to others, but we flatter them, again, in order to get things from them, that is another evil. We compromise the truth as well. When we, we refuse to stand up to bullets, um, that, is, that is another thing, because it, we may face some financial repercussions for doing that. When we refuse to pay others what they deserve, that would be another injustice that can arise from um, the love of money. When we waste natural resources for the, for the purpose of, of profit, uh, of financial gain, when we, when we destroy creation uh, for those things as well. Those are some evils that the love of money can lead to. Uh, in, 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 there's an Anglican bishop, Jeremy Taylor, in the 1600s, uh, wrote, He that gains all that he can lawfully this year, possibly next year will be tempted to gain something unlawfully. So there's steps too in which you can actually do none of the things that I mentioned, but within those constraints, the primary goal of your life is to make as much as you possibly can. It becomes very, very easy to cross, to cross that line as well. And so what we need to pursue is content. That is, the belief in that our well-being is not wrapped up in what we have. That's why Paul says in verse 6, that godliness is a contentment with, a, with an attitude of God's given me uh, what I need. Uh, his grace is sufficient, as Paul says in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. When we, when we come to life with that attitude, that, that's what contentment is. Paul says there's a great profit in that. For we, he says in verse 7, brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This is not an easy thing. Um, Job, it's hard not to see Job's words in uh, what Paul says here. When, when the first round of trials and difficulties came to Job, he responds to those, chapter 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that was the contentment correction at its highest level. Um, but we need to pursue these things because when we do, we're able to uphold the truth. Because part of the truth is that since Jesus has come to us, Jesus is enough. Jesus, Jesus is all we need. Now that's a whole lot easier to say in this context in church than on a, you know, a Monday morning after you lose your job. Or on a Thursday afternoon when you find out this is the sixth job that you applied for and did not get. I understand that. But if we're pursuing Christ um, and, we, and we really do believe that His grace is enough for us and we're pursuing contentment, we can uphold the truth. But our greatest problem is our sin and Jesus is taking care of that through His life, death, and resurrection. Um, and, and as we move away from the things that Paul says to move away from, we move toward the things that he says here, we can fulfill our, our purpose as a church. Um, and uphold the truth because our world is broken and they, they desperately need the truth. We desperately need the truth as well. So the Lord will be there. Lord God, I thank you for the truth that you have revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have been willing to die for our sins to save us. We have 
deserve that. And I pray, Lord, that that truth will change our lives. And I pray that you will enable us through the Holy Spirit to be people who are pursuing ultimately you, that we might fulfill what you call us to do and be, and be a pillar and buttress of the truth that others may come and know that truth and be saved and be asked to Christ's name. Amen.